Well, brethren, it's a joy for me to, to be with you. Um, I'm given to understand the, a number of visitors to this congregation from um, other churches, so a number of you would have uh, not been with me this morning. Um, but I mentioned earlier that um, we, we had a brother Lance Queen with us in Zambia, um, a few, well, no longer a few, uh, about 14 years ago, and uh, enjoyed his ministry. And so as the brethren there were aware that I was uh, coming here, they, they had um, the recollection of the rich ministry that we enjoyed when, when he was with us. Uh, so that's um, something that excited them. And consequently, they sent their greetings uh, to us. Well, um, as we've already heard, um, I'll be speaking from Romans chapter 14 and verse 17. What, so please turn there. What I did this morning was uh, a kind of pre-conference message in which I dealt with how to enter uh, God's kingdom. And I was concerned because what we will be largely dealing with in these four evenings will be um, the, the kind of life that characterizes the people of God, or another way, characterizes the kingdom of God. And it was therefore a burden of mine uh, that we should not take that for granted and consequently, we began this morning with First um, um, Corinthians chapter six, where we saw, first of all, our greatest challenge: the realization that the unrighteous do not enter the kingdom of God. We looked at our grave enslavement to sin, and there there were quite some detailed um, descriptions of the various sins that enslaved, especially uh, the people that were in Corinth in the first century. And lastly, we saw the glorious salvation that God wrought among them and indeed has been doing so right across history in bringing sinners to salvation, in bringing those that are under the kingdom of the evil one into uh, the kingdom of God. Now, uh, in the evening meetings, I want us to really look at uh, Romans 14, verse 17. But before we do so, let me just read, beginning with verse 13. We'll read all the way to verse 19, and then I'll give you a summary of what this chapter is all about. So if you are there, I commence reading Romans 14 and verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks 
it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. And then our text, for or because the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus saves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbringing. What was the Apostle Paul dealing with in this passage of Scripture? Well, most of you who might be familiar with the book of Romans will realize that the first 11 chapters are essentially doctrinal. They, they are giving us something of what Christianity is as God has fashioned it together in his most glorious plan. And then as you enter into chapter 12 going forward, you begin to have the imperatives that grow out of the indicatives that he has clearly put forth for us in the first 11 chapters. So whereas in the first 11 chapters, it is argued that there is but one place where the Apostle Paul gives an imperative. When you go from chapter 12 onwards, it is one imperative after the other. And all those are growing out of the statement that he gives. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, or as the New International Version puts it, in view of God's mercies. In other words, because of what God has done, this is the kind of life that you ought to live. Now, when the Apostle Paul enters into chapter 14, he is dealing with a, a crisis that was real in the first century church. It was the fact that the church's unity was under very serious threat. And the threat was essentially because you had the Jews on the one hand and the Gentiles on the other who had developed over centuries completely different forms of worship. And there was a reinforced concrete wall that stood between them. And now, Jesus has broken down that dividing wall and has brought them into a common church. Well, it won't be automatic that that which has made up so much of their lives would easily simply crumble behind them. Some of them managed to do so, to enter into the freedom that Christ has brought them into by his redemption. Others struggle. 
And so the Apostle Paul says in chapter 14 and verse 1, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. And then he adds, but not to quarrel over opinions. That's really the issue. That the Christian church at that time was beset with arguments and quarrels that are based on these opinions. And what are they? Well, he gives us an example in verse 2. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. And then he gives another example in verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. So it was issues like this that were threatening the peace of the Christian church. If you go to First um, Corinthians and chapter 8, you have yet another example of this kind of difficulty that the Christian church was going through. I'm tempted to begin with verse 1, but due to lack of time, we will go straight to verse 7. First uh, Corinthians 8, and I begin reading from verse 7. Listen to this. However, not all possess this knowledge that there's only one true God. All others are but false and, strictly speaking, do not really exist as lords. But anyway, let's go on. But some, through former associations with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. This is now Paul's own belief, as he has already shared with us in Romans. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But, this is what is happening with someone else. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? If his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols, so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. So these were the issues that the church was wrestling with. Now, the easiest solution to this would have been to say, okay, let's split you guys into two clean camps. Let's have uh, sort of the Jews' um, Bible church across that other side of the street, and let's have the Gentiles' Bible church on the other side of the street. Hopefully that solves the problem. Well, it doesn't, because the body of Christ is one. The church is one. You cannot be dividing it based on the scruples or the qualms of individual 
believers. So what does Paul do? Well, in, in the first 12 verses, he primarily concentrates on those who are the weak. And he is seeking to convince them not to be judgmental on those who are the strong. That's what he deals with there. And then from verse 13 to chapter 15 and verse 7, the Apostle Paul spends time now with the strong. In other words, those whose liberties enable them to do what the weak cannot do without sinning against their own consciences. He also strongly advises them on how they are to live. And basically, his counsel to them, his advice to them, is to hold back their freedom for the sake of others. And that out of love, so that together the church might be in an atmosphere of peace and mutual upbuilding. Now, it is while he's dealing with the strong that we find our text. Uh, Romans chapter 14 and verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. In other words, it's not primarily about the kind of issues over which you are tearing each other apart. Rather, it's about Righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, what I want us to do then is to, to, to spend our time in that text. And I want us to do so primarily because what the Apostle Paul does inadvertently in making this statement is that he makes a statement that is like Atlas. Atlas uh, is followed with that phrase that uh, uh, he carries the world on his shoulders. That little gem that he puts there, the kingdom of God, is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, is one that in capsule form summarizes what Christianity is all about. In other words, if you can understand this little verse here, it enables you to relate to whatever other issues might be coming in your direction that you have to wrestle with as individuals and collectively as a Christian church. That little verse enables you to have an organizing principle by which you are able to say, this is very important, this is less important. And therefore, we can agree to disagree over this and still continue in fellowship we cannot agree to disagree over this and continue in fellowship. This little uh, statement here, I want to repeat, carries the world on its shoulders. 
Now, in order for us to understand it, um, we need to begin by trying to understand what the Apostle Paul means by that little phrase at the very beginning, for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. The, the reason why that should hit you like a blow between the eyes is that the Apostle Paul, in the whole of this epistle, doesn't use this phrase. It's, it, it appears at least 120 times in the Gospels, less than 35 times in the rest of the epistles, and in the book of Romans, here it is standing out before our eyes. Why would the Apostle Paul have gone out of the normal words that would have been using about the people of God collectively and use the phrase, the kingdom of God? Well, the phrase kingdom refers, as I said to those who were here this morning, to a, a king's dominion. It is simply referring to the realm over which a king exercises his rule. Uh, back home in Zambia and Africa generally, we also have the phrase, a chief dome. And all we mean by that is the area, the realm over which a chief exercises his ultimate rule. Now, when the Apostle Paul therefore speaks about the kingdom of God, he's referring to the realm, the sphere, the area where God's rule is supreme. And when you read the Bible, you find that it's, it's normally in two senses. One has to do with the simple fact that God is in control of the whole of creation and the whole of history. He is the sovereign one who rules over all. We find this sense in Psalm 103 and verse 19. If we can just quickly turn with me there. Psalm 103 and verse 19. While you're turning there, um, I will just read the first few verses. Bless the Lord, O my soul, the Psalm of David, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your crowns, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed, and on and on he goes. And then he says in verse 19, if you're now there, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. That's the reason why David can 
bless the Lord with his entire soul and everything that is in him. It is because this God in ruling over all does so for the benefit of his people. He has his people in mind as beneficiaries of this rule. He satisfies you with good. He works righteousness and so forth for those who are oppressed. So that's one sense in which we are to understand the kingdom of God. And in a way, I will come to touch on it in a few minutes. But there's a second sense. And it is in terms of God's rule um, over those who willingly submit to his leadership. So what we're doing there now is that we are going away from his control over the whole of creation and we're now going into him being one that is deliberately worshipped, deliberately obeyed, deliberately loved from willing hearts. And it is in that sense that, for instance, in the Lord's Prayer, in uh, Matthew chapter 6, Matthew 6 and verse 10, I begin from verse 9. These are words of our Lord Jesus Christ. It says there, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. In other words, may your name be glorified. And then it says, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How will you be glorified? It is as your rule spreads over all the earth. So as the kingdom of God spreads throughout all the earth. And how does it spread? It is as his will is done as readily on earth as it is done in heaven. In other words, it is as his salvation reaches more and more and more human hearts. And as those hearts are sanctified more and more, likening their state to that which happens, especially among those whose um, who've never known what it means to fall into sin, that is the angelic beings, and then also, of course, those who have consequently been glorified. There is a perfect obedience there that those of us who are saved on earth have not yet reached. So it is in that sense here, your kingdom come, that in fact, the Apostle Paul is speaking of the kingdom of God. The second sense rather than the first. So when the Apostle Paul says that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, 
he's not talking about God's control over the whole of creation. He's instead talking about that realm where individuals have repented from sin, trusted in Christ, and have now become part of the people of God. Willingly, deliberately seeking to worship him. Now, what is Paul's burden about this text? It's primarily the fact that he wants to give us the distinct peculiarities of people who have thus experienced the saving purpose of God. Those who have come into God's kingdom. What is it that distinguishes them from everything else and everyone else? And that's what he now deals with, with when he says, it's not so much the eating and drinking, but the righteousness, the peace, and the joy in the Holy Spirit. Tomorrow onwards, we will deal with those peculiarities, those distinguishing marks, negatively and positively. But tonight, before we rush to those peculiarities, I want us to begin by looking at this king whose kingdom this realm is. The Apostle Paul speaks about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. I've already said that this phrase is only spoken of once here in terms of the phrase kingdom. But God, this potentate of this kingdom is literally on every page. Over and over and over again, maybe five, six, ten times per page, it's fairly clear that in the mind of the Apostle Paul, this God is the one about whom everything is. And yet, at the same time, because of the fact that he is on every page, it's very easy for us to miss him. Very easy. The way in which all of us in here, I'm sure even right now, you're not thinking about the air that's in the room that you're breathing. You're not thinking about it. You just take it for granted. It's not until someone perhaps throws in something that deprives us of the oxygen, that we begin to realize how privileged we've been to have had all the air that we needed to breathe. And often God can be like that in the Bible. That when you read a statement like the kingdom of God, all you are seeing there is kingdom and not God. Because He's always there in front of you. And yet in this particular case, I would like to argue 
that to miss the potentate himself, the king, is to render that phrase kingdom useless. Because literally, everything hangs on who the ruler is. And in this particular case, it is God himself. So I thought that what we could do tonight in the time that is remaining after this rather lengthy introduction is to, to, to gaze at this king whose kingdom this is. So that as we go forward in the coming days, we might do so bearing in mind not so much the logistics of how to live in, his, in this kingdom, but ensuring that from every angle we are seeking to live for his pleasure, we are seeking to live for his glory and for his honor. Because ultimately, that is what matters. So, let's begin where he is first mentioned. And it is in Genesis 1 and verse 1. And I deliberately want us to go there because what it says to us ultimately is that this book is not primarily about us. It is primarily about him, this same potentate. We are told there in Genesis 1 verse 1 that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In other words, everything that exists exists because he desired it to exist. The whole of creation, including you and me, we happen to be simply because this God created the heavens, he created the earth, he literally created everything. He pre-existed this point. He was already in existence at the point at which he was creating the entire universe. We read in Psalm 90, I'll just quickly read it for you there, and verse 1 to verse 4, the words of Moses. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Now listen to this. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past as a watch in the night. The one 
who rules over this kingdom is one who pre-existed in terms of before creation ever came into being. Pause with me for a moment and think. Here was this God who was from everlasting. In other words, from eternity. Who knows absolutely no beginning. And nothing else existed except himself. In other words, he does not need us in order for him to exist and to be absolutely blessed. He doesn't need anything outside himself in order to exist. He's not like us as human beings. If oxygen was to be taken out of this room, all of us would instantly collapse. If there was no meat and vegetables for us to survive on, we would hardly live an extra month or two, we would all be dead. God does not need oxygen. He does not need food. This potentate does not need his kingdom in order for him to survive. Absolutely zero. And because he is from eternity, as we've already been told by Moses in Psalm 90, because he predates Genesis 1 verse 1, he actually never gets old. Never. He doesn't age. He knows nothing of the aches and pains of the passing of years. He is as young, if we could use that phrase, as he has always been. That's the God who is there. He is ever omnipresent. In other words, he is everywhere. At the same time, he is ever omniscient. In other words, he knows everything from beginning to end at a glance. It's all there before him. He knows all things. He is one who is omnipotent. He has all power. Let me use the phrase infinite power. And that's the reason why a little sentence like God created the heavens and the earth literally speaks in terms of a universe that the most powerful telescopes 
that human beings have ever invented simply scratch the surface of. That's how powerful this potentate is. Now, I've used the phrase omnipresent, omniscient, and omnipotent because I, I want you to a human king who might be like that. We're not even wanting to add the omni to it. Let's, let's just imagine an emperor who knows everything that is happening around him, who can be in any place at any time, who has vast power, we would be fearful of such a one. We would tremble at such a one. We would be thinking to ourselves, wow, I hope I'm never on the wrong side of that chap. Well, multiply that by infinity. That's the potentate we are dealing with who rules over all creation and who rules over his people. Let's go back to our text. When we go to verse 2, sorry, I'm still in Genesis. Genesis 1. When we go to verse 2, it soon becomes apparent that this God is actually a plural being. For we read, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And then we read, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Suddenly, we are told of this God whose Spirit is hovering over the waters. In verse 3, we have the phrase, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. In the light of the New Testament, we know that this word refers to God the Son, by whom the whole of creation came into being. But when we go towards the end of this chapter, and particularly in verse 26, we notice the plural aspect of this God. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let us make man in the plural. Let us in our image is the plural. In our likeness. It soon becomes evident that this God exists in more than one person. Thankfully, again, we have the entire New Testament to open up this reality a lot more. 
that the God who is the potentate is a God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it is in the fellowship of the three persons of this Godhead that therefore there is absolute blessedness with no sense of anything amiss. In other words, if God had not created the universe, if he had not created you and me, he would not have missed anything. Now that's humbling. Especially when we think that we are so important. <laughs> that somehow God owes us something because he needs us. No. He is the truly blessed God. So this is the one who rules. He, he does not need the creation that he has brought into being. He does not need what we will come to in a few minutes, the citizens of his kingdom to make him happy. He doesn't. He is completely self-sufficient in and of himself. Let me ask, have you reached that point in your spiritual pilgrimage where you've realized this about God? That, that you, you don't do him any favor at all. He does not need you to make him happy. That in bringing you into creation and bringing creation into being. He's simply carrying out a purpose that in his own mind he wanted to achieve. Not that he was in desperation. Not at all. But before we jump into the citizens of this kingdom, let's do one further little exercise. Let's pay a visit to his throne room. A king has a throne room. Let's go to the book of Revelation. And in a sense, as we peep at chapter 4 of the book of Revelation, we are peeping into the throne room of God when he has already created. So we are seeing God in his heaven. Heaven is a creation by God. We are seeing him in the midst of angelic beings. Those angels are also created beings. But still, I want us to peep there. 
Because there's nothing that overwhelms us as subjects of a king than entering into the throne room of the king. The Western world may have to a large extent lost something of this. But those of us who live in the context of Africa, who still have our chiefs and our paramount chiefs, we know something of the sense of majesty that is almost overpowering as you arrive at the palace of the chief. As you go first past those that are his warriors and then you go past those who are the indunas or the elders of the people and then you get onto those who immediately protect his throne and you are still going on. And as you reach the end, the last category of individuals you meet begin to find out from you whether you have been told how to behave as you now go past here. Because your life might be hanging on a thread. That when you go in, you don't look the king or the chief on the face. You look down. And when you reach such a position, you stop until you hear his voice, either summoning you or giving some kind of instruction. Everything there is suggesting power, majesty, glory. Well, we have a picture of this in Revelation chapter 4. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I'll show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven. With one seated on the throne, and him who sat there had the appearance of Jasper, and Canelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. 
the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. Again, these are comparisons. The closest that John could get to what he knew existed on earth. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. I wonder whether when you think about the Christian faith, you bring that into the mix, into the equation. That the Christian faith is not about you and me. We are under the any other business. It's about this potentate. This, this king. This glorious one. It's about God. Who, when creation came into being, it was meant to be for his own glory. For his own glory. You see, the nature of sin is primarily this, a failure to live for this king. That's the nature of sin. It's not so much that, you know, someone has stolen your car or, or someone has punched you in the face and therefore he's bad. There's something more glorious than that. That that person does not worship this great potentate. That his voice is not added to the voices of the angels to say, worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. And in that sense, hell makes sense. Because it is where this king 
sends those who fail to honor him. It's not just for, for serial rapists and serial murderers. No, 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 no. It's for everyone who puts I in the center of his life instead of putting God there. And in this sense, also, salvation becomes a wonder of all wonders. Because here is one who has the ability, if he wanted to, at the click of his own fingers, to recreate the whole of humanity that has been corrupted by sin. He's got the ability, remember, we're saying that he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. And yet, what does this God of the kingdom do? He sends the second person of the Godhead to come and pay the price for the sin of his creatures. Now, if that doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what will. It's probably because you've brought God so low that he's like one of you. But when you realize that he is the the king of this dominion, he is over all, he doesn't need us. Yet out of a desire to manifest his own grace, his own goodness, his own mercy, the extent of it, doesn't send an angel to pay the price for our sin. He sends God the Son. And what that does, as I hurry on to close, is it makes the subjects of his kingdom, in this second sense, remember, those that now seek to obey him. It gives them a double reason why they should do so. The first reason is that out of his own will, he created us. Remember what we saw in in Revelation and chapter 4. Purely out of his own will, he has brought us into being. We owe him a lot. But secondly, because he has given his own son to pay the price for our sin. Surely, because of that, we should love him with all our beings. We should serve him with all our beings. We should obey him with all our beings. We should submit to him with all our beings. Indeed, we ought to worship him with all our beings. This King of kings and Lord of all lords. And in the midst of all that, we feel our own unworthiness. 
It was John Mason who wrote, How shall I sing that majesty that angels do admire? From dust to dust, in silent lies, he says, Sing, sing, ye heavenly choir. He basically says, To add my voice to that, really, strictly speaking, I ought to shut up. He is such a glorious being. Brethren, I want to close with simply one statement. And it is this. Church is not primarily about you and your qualms and your scruples and your comfort and your happiness. It's about this great potentate, God. And the sooner we realize that, the better churches we will have. Let us pray. Great God of heaven, We sang earlier on, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Early in the morning, our song shall rise to thee. O Lord, may it be that as we read your word, we may have more and more a growing sense of the majesty and immensity and profundity of the God who is. Therefore, we may sense more and more not only how minute we are or how evil our sin is, but much more how privileged we are They've been brought into your kingdom. Oh, Father, help us to see more and more the potentate of the kingdom. Amen.